Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Right, so I'm going to make a start. I'm hoping not to be too long this morning because I want to get on to uh, more important things. I'm going to start with a prayer from uh, Colossians. So if you want to read along, it's Colossians 1 from verse 9. For this reason, since the day we've heard of it, we have not ceased praying for you and asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of God in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may lead lives worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him as you bear fruit in every good work. And as you grow in the knowledge of God, may you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power, and may you be prepared to endure everything with patience while joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sin. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in him all things, in heaven and on earth, were created. Things invisible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. And you were once estranged in mind and hostile, doing evil deeds, and he is now reconciled in his fleshly body through death, so as to present you holy and blameless and irreproachable before him provided that you continue securely established and steadfast in the faith, without shifting from the hope promised by the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. I, Paul, have become a servant of this gospel. Uh, So note um, the magnificent language that Paul's using. He's talking uh, about the Christ, filling all in all, that God, through Christ, in Christ, was reconciling all things to himself. But notice the language of opposition um, it, it's through troubles it's through death it, it's in the midst of, of death it, so that our faith would uh, remain resolute in the midst of trouble not away from trouble Christ didn't deliver us away from trouble he took us out of the dominion of death and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son but we are in the dominion of death and we are being delivered it's our faith in the midst of these things not away from the world but we are in the world but not of the world Okay, so just bear this in mind, this this great prayer of of Paul, the deliverance from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. So, to start with then, I've got a few confessions. Um, This church, I figure this is a good place for that. Uh, The iPad's died. Um, I have what seems to be quite a unique way of making notes that I can read. on the iPad, but I don't have that anymore. So as people have noted, I've gone old school. And what I've realized is that I write differently to how I talk. So this could be fun. This could be fun. So my confession, well, it's not really a confession, it's it's an apology. So it's a real privilege. I got really excited about this. This is the first Sunday of Lent. And as I've gone in in my Christian faith, I've, I've come to appreciate 
kind of the church calendar a lot more, the depth and the riches uh, that's there. And, and uh, so I, I started preparing this Lenten message, and I actually was quite surprised by where I ended up. Um, so in, in, the, in the preaching meeting, uh, Stephen Jez will, will testify to this, that I was kind of preparing myself to be talking about this kind of, you know, a bit, bit of a, a dour message about, you know, in, in the midst of struggle and stuff. But actually it turned out to be something more along the lines of spiritual warfare, which is really not, well, it's really not my bag, if you know me at all. So it, this, this, again, should be interesting. Um, so who's got Luke 9? I need some, I need some readers. Me. Go on then, can you read all the verses I gave you? So, yeah. Do you want me to say what they are as I go? Yeah, you can do. Okay. So Luke, initially Luke 9, verse 20 to 22. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So moving down to 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And then 51... 53. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set towards Jerusalem. Okay, he's got Luke 13. I have. Uh, Luke 13, verses 22 and 23. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Uh, and verse 33? I haven't got verse 33 written down. Okay, sorry, my bad. Uh, verse 33. Don't read it, it's not written down. Well, I know. <laughs> it's not in the scriptures according to Sai. <laughs> um, in any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Okay, I hope you're beginning to catch a thread here. Uh, who's got Luke 17, verse 11, in case my hand wasn't really bad? Luke 17, verse 11. And it, and it came to pass, as they were all, as they were on the way to Jerusalem, that he was passing along the borders of Samaria and Galilee. Brilliant. He's got Luke 18, verse 31. Me. On, and he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. Yeah. And who's got Luke nineteen twenty eight and 41? And when he has thus spoken, he went before ascending up to Jerusalem. And then 41. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city. He wept over it. Okay, so all of those verses... So Luke 9, Luke 13, Luke 17, Luke 18, Luke 19. Where is Jesus heading? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. What is he expecting to happen in Jerusalem? Luke had most of those texts. To be, uh, to be, um, to be, basically to be um, cast down by the, 
the chief priests and the scribes be rejected and killed. Okay, and somebody else had a verse about prophets dying yeah. outside of Jerusalem. Surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. So where's he going? Jerusalem. What's he expecting to happen there? This, these are typical sort of Lenten texts, actually. I didn't realise that before I started planning. But the idea is, Jesus is heading to Jerusalem. Okay? And he's going to die. Jesus isn't fuzzy about this. From Luke 9, that's less than halfway through the Gospel, he knows exactly what is going to happen. The disciples, not so much. But Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and he's going to die. He is going to Jerusalem for love, and by love, to be crucified. He's going to lay down his life. He's not cloudy about this. He knows that that's what's going to happen. And this is the ultimate act of self-giving love, to suffer unto death, but swallow death up in his own life. You even sense in the rhythm of the texts, Luke 9, Luke 13, Luke 17, Luke 18, Luke 19, it's building towards a crescendo. There's a climax happening. Like Luke is a brilliant writer. even like don't read the Bible even theologically read it just as literature and notice the pacing of the text even Jesus knows something is happening and he's setting his face resolutely to keep going on you know that as he's going along there are people in these villages saying Jesus just just hang around there are more people to be healed you can do this Jesus just hang around with us but Jesus is saying look no I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die (coughs) and that this is what the period of Lent is all about setting our face resolutely to Jerusalem and the confrontation and the overcoming of death. Rowan Williams says this, I love this. It is important to remember that the word Lent itself comes from the old English word for spring. It is not about feeling gloomy for 40 days. It is not about making yourself miserable for 40 days. It is not even about giving up things for 40 days. Lent is a springtime. It is preparing for that great climax of springtime, which is Easter. New life bursting through death and I just love that phrase new life bursting through death okay and and so that's what I'm calling this new life bursting through death a Lenten homily see Pete and Steve didn't like it because it didn't rhyme (laughs) but new life bursting through death it's not new life happening somewhere away from death it's not new life happening alongside death It's new life bursting through death. It's the abundance of life that God has come to give us. Bursting through death, in the midst of death, in spite of death, in the face of death, confronting death head on, resolutely heading towards Jerusalem, knowing full well exactly what is going to happen. Swallowing death up in life, new life bursting through death. This whole period that we're entering into is a period of anticipation. Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem and knew what was coming. The anticipation of the death of Jesus Christ, but also of the empty tomb. And we could get all kind of, it's Friday, (laughs) Saturday's coming. (laughs) It's a period of setting our faces resolutely towards Jerusalem and the climactic acts that will occur there. The cross and the confrontation, the overcoming of death. New life bursting through death, death being swallowed up in life. And the thing is, this period of contemplation should plunge us right into the middle of the world that we're in, not remove us from the world. This shouldn't be a time when we go about with glum faces, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm fasting, I'm, I'm, so, I'm, I'm really holy, I'm, I'm fasting, I'm so hungry, I've given up chocolate for Lent and it's such a cross to bear. 
I need to be away from you guys that are eating chocolate. <laughs> Instead, it, it's to be so incarnated, it's to be so in this dominion of death, but not of it, but so in it that new life could come. One of, uh, there's a guy uh, that I just love this length of meditation. It's called, Only Where Graves Are, Are There Resurrections. New life bursting through death. Only where graves are, are there resurrections. It's not a period of this kind of hyper-spiritualized piety. It's an implacable march towards Jerusalem and the cross. We find the source of our hope in the midst of a world of hopelessness. We find hope in the midst of hopelessness. We incarnate hope in the midst of hopelessness. There's no reason otherwise to have hope. If we're not doing it somewhere where there is no hope. Let our spiritual practice be incarnated spirituality. Let our fast be fully orb, fully fleshed out participation in this kingdom of the blood son, beloved son. And um, one of our favourite texts that we haven't actually been to for ages is Isaiah 58. God's fasts aren't these holy removed things. They're fully immersed in the visceral, tangible world of difficulty. They're fully immersed in the dominion of darkness that we may find the true purpose of the kingdom of the beloved son. It's in the midst of death that new life breaks through. Is this not the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house, when you see the naked to cover them, and not hide yourself from your own kin? Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up quickly, and the, your vindicator will go before you notice. The terms are so visceral. They're, these are real people you are dealing with. They have flesh and blood. God's fast is not to be removed from these things. God's fast is to be so immersed in the midst of it that new life would break through in the kingdom of death. The glory of your Lord should be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer, and you shall cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from among you, the pointing finger, the speaking of evil, if you offer your food to the hungry and satisfy the needs of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness, and your gloom will be like the noonday. Why is it your light will not shine in the darkness if you are not in the darkness? The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places. How will you be satisfied unless you are in those parched places? You will already be satisfied otherwise. <clears throat> the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your needs in parched places and make your bones strong. You should be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters never fell. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to live in. Notice how God's spirituality, God's chosen fast, is fully incarnated in the midst of a world that is crumbling down. God is embodying hope in the midst of hopelessness. God is bringing forth new life in the midst of death. God is shining a light in the darkness. God's fast is not aside from things, it's in the very midst of things. And so during this period of Lent, it's not to remove ourselves or be so holy or so spiritual or so in another plane. You know, sometimes we can get so consumed with the calendar in a really weird way in, in the church. This is 40 days. You know, like we can obsess about what we've given up to miss the point completely. But actually, it's to plunge ourselves right in the midst of everything that we're already in. 
<clears throat> this means that in all of the tragedy, the bitter and desperate situations we encounter in our own lives and in the lives of others are not meant to be rationalised. You know, they're not meant to, you know, we're not meant to turn around and say, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that you're sick, you know. It could, there could be some purpose in it, there could be some meaning in it. I'm sorry that, you know, your relative died. But they're, they're in a better place. They are in a better place. But we don't need pat and try answers. We can't ignore the suffering. You know, sometimes, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I've got to be on my way. I've got to be on my way to my Lenten fast now. I've got to be on my way to my spirituality. I haven't got time for this. It can't be dismissed. You know, we can't live in this, this, this vacuous, victorious living. You know, I'm not sick, I'm not sick. When your nose is streaming and you're feeling rough and rubbish. Instead, in the anticipation of Easter, the cross, the empty tomb, these things should enable us to be fully aware and fully present and fully engaged in these situations. In the midst of the pain, the heartache and the tragedy, and with more to hand than just thoughts and prayers, we can bring forth a real light, a real hope, a real life in the midst of death, an inspiring and in-breathing of the Spirit, inspire, and an empowering, and I love this, this quote, to put love where there is no love. And that is fundamentally what we are called to do. We are called to put love where there is no love. So just think about it. Is it love if, you, if somebody's sick and you tell them, just, just pretend like you're not sick. Just act like you're not sick. That's not love. Is it love to, to put, well, I mean, you know, my spirituality is over this place and you just happen to be over here. And I can't come over there because I might get contaminated or I might get off track with my, with my, observa- my Christian observations. And so this period of time, this Lenten time, is all about being in the dirt. That's where we find Jesus, he's in the dirt. Uh, turn with me to Romans 12. I love this. Again, notice how love is described. Verse 9, let love be genuine. This is so powerful. Hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. What is genuine love? Hating with a perfect hatred all that is evil, all that is death. And hold fast to what is good. What is genuine love? It's holding fast to what is good and hating what is evil. And then, just so we're not fuzzy that it's some far off spirituality love one another with mutual affection outdo one another in showing honour do not lack in zeal but be ardent in spirit serve the Lord rejoice in hope be patient in suffering again notice it's not away from suffering it's in suffering persevere in prayer contribute to the needs of the saints and extend hospitality to strangers notice how all of these things are interwoven in real relationships, real tangible life in the flesh. That love is experienced and expressed in the midst of these things, not away from these things. And it has a tangible quality to it. Be hospitable. Welcome people. It's not, it's not rocket science. We don't have to use special holy theological language, which I do like to do, I have to admit. <laughs> 
Bless those who persecute you. So what are you facing if you're having to bless people that persecute you? You're facing the persecution. It's not pray so hard that you're removed from persecution, but in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of tribulation, in the midst of trial, do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with all. Beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay, says the Lord. Now, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. And by doing this, you'll heap burning coals on the head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil by good. Notice the tangible quality of the spirituality. I'm labouring a point. Ian Russell last week uh, shared a definition of hope. The room was total crickets when, when he asked. Uh, but I really liked it. I'm not, I've got to admit, I don't usually like it when a preacher tries to define something. Because usually, like, it, it's, it's a very narrow definition that probably doesn't agree with all the circumstances that these words are in. But I actually really like this one. Because um, it wants to define hope as the confident expectation of eventual good. And, and the reason why I liked it was because of the word eventual. Um, because this, this agrees with something that, that we know from uh, John sixteen thirty three. It says, in this world you will have tribulation. You will have tribulation. That's not one of Jesus' promises that you have on a fridge magnet. Um, but take heart, because Jesus has overcome the world. So you will have tribulation, but Jesus has overcome. And there's this idea that there is an eventual good. We might not be able to explain the tribulation. We, know, we may not have the reasons or the words to say this really, really rubbish situation that you are in. We might not be able to say, this is why it's happening. You know, sometimes we like to say, you know, you get all of those really crazy kind of um, right-wing preachers in the States, you know, when there's a tsunami or something, oh, it's because of their sin, because of their witchcraft, or, or whatever. But sometimes we don't have an explanation. All we have is the hope that Jesus Christ has overcome. Because only where graves are, is their resurrection and that's all we've got in the midst of death new life is bursting through so from here on out i'm going to use a phrase uh, death and all all his friends which is a cold play song but um it, it serves as a nice sort of catch-all everything that is in opposition to the kingdom of the beloved son is death and all his friends everything that is the negation of life everything that is the negation of light is death and all his friends Everything that is the opposite of life in abundance. The enemy is the one who comes to steal, kill and destroy. But Jesus has come that we might have life and life in abundance. So everything that's opposite to life and life abundantly is death and all of his friends. This is the dominion of darkness in, one, in Colossians 1. And then the opposite to that is the kingdom of the beloved son. I don't really like polemics either, but I'm doing it, aren't I? It's just a completely surprising morning for me. <laughs> The work of God is the overcoming of death and all of his friends. From the beginning, God has been confronting and overcoming death and all of his friends. 
And the thing is, the only theodicy that the Bible gives is one of resistance. Theodicy is the explanation of why evil exists. Why do bad things happen to good people? That's theodicy. The Bible doesn't give us a nice answer. It doesn't give us a systematic theology about why bad things happen to good people. All it offers us is that God resists evil. Always. There's never a time when God doesn't resist evil. He's always confronting evil and overcoming evil. It's always in the midst of evil. It's always in the midst of death and all of his friends that God is at work. So all we know is that our posture as Christians, as followers of the Christ, is one of resistance. I'm going to talk about how we resist in a bit. But throughout the track of the Bible, God confronts the nothingness. In Genesis 1, the nihil, you know, they talk about creation being ex nihilo. God confronts the nihil, the nothingness, and brings forth thingness. And he brings forth creation. God confronts the tohu vabohu, the formless void, the wasteland, the lurking chaos of the deeps. And he brings forth order. God confronts the darkness and brings forth light. God confronts the lostness of Adam and Eve with seeking and finding. Adam, where are you? God confronts the shame of being uncovered by covering and clothing with tenderness. God confronts the violence of Cain with mercy. You know, God says, no one is going to slay you, Cain. God confronts the calamity of the flood and brings forth new life and new promises and new hope. God confronts barrenness of Sarah with progeny, with fruitfulness, with legacy. He confronts the withered and decaying in hopelessness. Abraham and Sarah, we're too old. We can't have the life that you said we could have, God. And he confronts that hopelessness with new hope, with new promises, with a demonstrable fidelity to those promises. He doesn't just say, believe me, but look, I am the God who has already done these things for you, Abraham. Am I not already trustworthy to you? Where there was slavery and exploitation in Exodus, God brings forth the liberation. Where there was a rootless wandering of the people in the wilderness, he brings forth a settlement, a home, a land flowing with milk and honey. Where there is a mass of humanity without an identity, God calls them a peculiar people, a nation unto the Lord. Where there is failure, and the nation of Israel do this a lot, where there is infidelity, God continuously renews trust and gives new promises of his faithfulness. God is always confronting death and all of his friends and always bringing forth life and life abundantly. There is a perennial confrontation between God and death, but there is always an overcoming by God. In a John, the light has shone in the darkness and the darkness has not comprehended it. And that word comprehend isn't just like, I can't figure out this light. I just can't get mad around it. That's not what it is. Darkness is wrestling with the light, but the darkness cannot bring light down. And we have that odd adage, you know, you can, you can turn a light on and drive darkness out of a room, but you can't turn a dark on. Light shines in the darkness. Life comes bursting through death. It does not hide from death like we would tend to. That's a scary situation. You know, your brokenness is just too much for me. You know, the mess you're in, nah, wash my hands, I can't, I can't. 
Light shines in the darkness. Life comes bursting through death. It does not hide or avoid it. And it does not just politely agree to disagree. Jesus never said to saying, yeah, you know what, you go your way, I'll go my way. There's never a polite disagreement. It continuously, unrelentingly confronts and overcomes death. God, the God of life, is incarnated in the realm of death. There's this great verse in Hebrews where it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too, Jesus, shared in our humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. I love that. Break the power. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's us. It kind of reminds me of like some of the Psalms where it, where it talks about like breaking the teeth of my enemy. And when we think about that in real terms, you know, like you know, David smashing someone's face in, it's not so cool. But when you think about God overcoming the devil, Jesus came into the dominion of death to rescue us into the kingdom of his beloved son. He came that we should have life and life abundantly. And this is one of the coolest verses in, in the Bible, I think. 1 John 3, 8. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Why did Jesus come? And we often will talk in terms of love because we like love. We like the affirmative or the positive side of things. But on the flip side of that, why did Jesus come? To destroy the works of the devil. Another quote from uh, Richard Beck. By the way, I'm quoting this guy. And this, seriously, one of the best books I've ever read. And it's another one of those curious things where I bought it because I was kind of curious about what it was about. And I was just like jaw on the floor after after I read it. Um, He's a psychologist by trade, but he's a pretty good theologian as well. And he says this, There are forces adversarial to love and grace in the world. And I don't care all that much if you think those forces are due to Beelzebub, a dark tendency in human psychology, or the second law of thermodynamics. If God is love, and if love is at the heart of the kingdom of God, that love is a heroic act of resistance in a world governed by hate, violence, and indifference. Our love, the love that we share, the love that we give, is a heroic act of resistance in a world governed by hate, violence, and indifference. I don't know, man, that just gets my blood thrown. The quintessential demonstration of this overcoming love is the cross. All confrontation and overcoming of death is for love and by love. We cannot overcome the realm of death with the tools of death. We cannot, uh, so mind-numbingly, I, I, I don't like getting too political, but I, I just there are no face palms big enough for what is going on in the States at the moment. The idea that you can overcome death by guns with more guns you cannot overcome the kingdom of death with the tools of death we overcome evil by good not with greater evil or greater ability to inflict pain so like but the problem is this is this is intrinsic to our society you know um, uh, Popeye what what happens in every episode of Popeye he eats his spinach. But Bluto, the big massive guy, kidnaps olive oil. How does Popeye overcome? By being stronger than him. By doing more violence than that guy. And the problem is, is that olive oil is always explo- exploited. Popeye never learns to eat his spinach first. 
and they always have to have a fight. It's called a cycle of violence. We will never overcome death and all his friends with the, with the mechanisms and ways of death and all his friends. We will never overcome criticism by criticising. We'll never overcome hatred and terror by utilising hatred and terror. We will overcome evil by good. We will overcome death by life. We will overcome darkness with light. We will overcome hopelessness with hope. The Christian life is one of love-filled resistance. And the thing is, you know, Peter doesn't get this. This this whole thing that I've just said is just the same as Peter. Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to die on a cross. That's how this kingdom works, by self-giving love. And Peter's saying, no, no, no. Far be it from you to do these things, Jesus. Far be it from you to say these things. And Peter says, Peter, get behind me, Satan. You do not know of what kingdom you are of. Because Peter's thinking, well, let's do the swords thing. The swords thing will be really cool, Jesus. You know, you are the Messiah. This comes right on the back of him saying you're the Messiah. Let's do the swords thing. Because you're awesome and you'll be cool with the sword. And, P- and Jesus said, that you're never going to overcome that way. Because you're just being more of the same. There is always this cruciform confrontation, but then there is always a resurrection, an empowering, an overcoming of death by life. There's not one of avoidance or ignorance or just a glib insulation from death. We're safe in our church. We don't need any of that out there. You know, come in here and be saved. You know, everybody else, well, they're just too silly to accept the invitation. It's a direct confrontation and a resistance and finally an overcoming. It's not bluster or hubris or empty rhetoric. Um, we don't say things like, oh, it was just meant to be. Or maybe there's meaning in this. It is absolute resistance. It's absolute um, resistance to those things. There's always an overcoming creation from the Nile, a chosen people from slavery, a wiping away of every tear, and there's an end to death and a new creation coming. Revelation 21 is just phenomenal. I am going to quote Richard Beck again. The reason why I quote these guys, by the way, is because they say things far better than me. I love this. Spiritual warfare is often comprised of the small and daily acts of resistance to live humanely in an inhuman world. Sometimes we think that our spiritual warfare, or the way we do our spiritual life, is to um, get all excited and hyped up or, or pray with aggression. But sometimes it is actually being hospitable yeah. or giving your thirsty enemy a drink or feeding them when they're hungry. Because yeah. Psalm 23 tells us in the midst of the valley of shadow of death that the presence and the comfort of the shepherd is known. Yeah. Where is the banquet? In the presence of my enemies. And not wanting to add uh, unnecessary emotion. Um, but when we went through like stuff with Sarah, it wasn't helpful when people were telling us, you know, God's got a plan. Or even the more hopeful, things will turn out okay in the end. Do you know that, really? But what made a difference was when people around us resisted death and all his friends with small and daily acts of love. So it could be crying with us or sending us a message. It could be praying with us, feeding us, hearing us, being present with us physically and emotionally. Those were acts of love defiant in the face of the death that we were encountering and ushering us into this kingdom of the beloved son. And you know what? Like, 
Sarah may well have died, but that would not have diminished the, those acts of life bursting through death. And it would not diminish the need to carry on resisting death, to confront death, or to look to the Christ who overcomes. It would hurt. Jesus never promised that things wouldn't hurt. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. Things might push us to the very brink. And one phrase that I use during, during the time of Sarah is like looking into the abyss. I just felt like I was staring over nothingness. I had no, some days I just didn't have, have a clue which way it was up. But you know what, there's this amazing verse in the Psalms where it says, Though I make my bed in hell, you will be with me. You know, we have that phrase, uh, you made your bed, so lie in it. You know, you get your just desserts for making a complete mess of your life. And God's answer to that is, though you make your bed in hell, I'll be with you. Psalm 139, if you want to look. And that also talks about hating the enemies of God with a perfect hatred. So, come to a close. Susie, when you work with those kids at school, you embody life bursting through death. You are the resistance of love incarnated. Lydia, when you work with those families and those kids, you embody life bursting through death. You are the resistance of love incarnated. Jeremy, when you are reaching out to those farmers, you embody life bursting through death. You are the resistance of love incarnated. As we as a church, participate with Carriers of Hope or God's Coffee Shop. We embody life bursting through death. We are the resistance of love incarnated. In my job, there matters very little. And with my family, that matters very much. I embody life bursting through death. I am the resistance of love incarnated. As we encounter, and we do, as we encounter loss, and grief and brokenness and weariness as we encounter our own impatience and lack and sickness we embody life bursting through death we are the resistance of love incarnated and this is the kicker it is not our own life or force of will that accomplishes this sometimes we think this is if I love these kids more if I do more if I be more, it is the life of Christ that bursts through death. And we are hid in him. So sometimes, and we know this, that as we encounter brokenness, loss, grief, whether it be our own or somebody else's, we know that we grow weary. We know that we grow tired. We know that we get stressed out. But it is not our own lives that are the ones that are invigorating all these situations. It is not our own life that is fueling life bursting through death. It is the life of Christ and therefore we have to realise that sometimes we need life to burst through death inside of us as well. That it's not just our endless giving out. But that sometimes we do need to do that thing, you know, I kind of railed against it, but you know, stick ourselves in a player closet away from the world for a bit and get some peace but also we need to allow other people sometimes when I can't cope like with Sarah I need 
you guys to come over and pray with me. Or actually you guys just to come and say, hey, we feel your pain. I need to feel the life of Christ through you because I haven't got enough. I'm going to finish with a quote and then we're going to have communion. Also one of the best books I've read. It's a very short book. A knowledge central to the gospel, the knowledge of the evil of death, death's intrinsic falsity, its unjust dominion over the world, its ultimate nullity, the knowledge that God is not pleased or nourished by our deaths. He is not the secret architect of evil. He is the conqueror of hell. And he has condemned all of those things by the power of the cross. The knowledge that God is life and infinite love. Fortunately, I think, we Christians are not obliged, and perhaps not even allowed, to look upon devastation and to attempt to console ourselves or others with vacuous cant about the ultimate meaning or purpose residing in all that misery. Ours, after all, is a religion of salvation. Our faith is in a God who has come to rescue his creation from the absurdity of sin, the emptiness and waste of death, the forces, whether calculated malevolence or imbecile chance, that shatter living souls. And so we are permitted to hate these things, death and all his friends, with a perfect hatred. We are not only permitted, but required to believe that cosmic time as we know it, through all the immensity of the geological ages and the historical epochs, is only a shadow of the true time. This world is only a shadow of the fuller, richer, more substantial, more glorious creation that God intends. At such times, in the midst of tragedy, to see the goodness indwelling in all creation requires a labour of vision that only faith in Easter can sustain. But it is there, effulgent and fading, innocent, it is there. But languishing in bondage to corruption, groaning in anticipation of a glory yet to be revealed, both of a promise of the kingdom yet to come and a portent of its beauty. Until that final glory, however, this world remains divided between two kingdoms, where light and darkness and death and life grow up together and await the harvest. In such a world, our portion is charity and our sustenance is faith. And so it will be until the end of days. As for comfort, when we seek it, I can imagine none greater than the happy knowledge that when I do see the death of a child, I do not see the face of God, but I see the face of his enemy. Now we are able to rejoice that we are saved not through the imminent mechanisms of history and nature, but by grace. That God will not unite all of history's many strands in one great synthesis, but he will judge much of death and his, all of his friends. False and damnable. He will not simply reveal his sublime log logic of fallen nature, but he will strike off the fetters of which creation languishes, and that, rather than showing us how the tears of a small girl suffering in the dark were necessary for the building of a kingdom, he will instead raise, up, raise her up and wipe away her tears. There will be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying, nor any more pain, for the former things will have passed away, and he that sits upon the throne will say, Behold, I make all things new. Where there is absence, bring presence. Where there is chaos, where there are things spinning out of control in people's lives, bring a peaceful order. Where there is darkness, be a light. Where there is violence, bring mercy. Where there is hopelessness, demonstrate God's faithfulness to his promises of good. Where there is grief, be children of the God who sees, who knows, who comforts and who wipes our tears. 
Where there is exclusion, bring an embrace. Where there is fear, bring the words of peace that Jesus says, do not be afraid. Where lurks death and all of his friends, confront and overcome by love. Where there is no love, put love. And that is what Lent is about. Life, new life bursting through death. In the midst of death, in the presence of death, but new life bursting forth. And so, uh, let us move on uh, to communion. A reminder of the bodily presence of Christ in this world. Jesus' body, broken by us and for us. And Jesus' blood poured out. I love this invitation. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little. You who have been there often and you have not been here long. You have tried to follow and you who have failed. Come, because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. So please come to the table.